0: Today, my guest is Albert Sai, Senior Vice President at Catapult Sports. Welcome.
1: Hi, Simmer. Thanks for having me.
0: Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to dive right into uh, just a little bit more about you. Um, what initially got you interested in sports?
1: Well, that's, that's a good question. I think I've been a sports fan and a sports participant um, as long as I can remember. So since a kid, I've loved dribbling basketball and playing soccer. Uh, big believer in team sports. Uh, so played as much as I could through high school. Um, but it was pretty apparent getting out of high school that I had no real future in sports. So I went to college, academics first, uh, ended up in Champaign. Played a lot of intermittent, spent a lot of time at Impey. Um, probably really never thought that sports would be uh, my profession. Um, but as things turned out, I happened to land in sports technology, which is a great opportunity to blend the computer science degree and all the education I got in Champaign with a personal passion. And I'm one of the lucky few who get to do both for both their uh, personal and professional life.
0: Nice. And then you you mentioned uh, just going into the sports industry. Could you talk a little bit more about the barrier to entry uh, into getting into the sports industry and working with uh, the technology and servicing these two uh, professional athletes?
1: Yeah. So the the sports technology world, particularly at the elite level, so when we talk about the NFL teams, the NBA teams, your pro sports, even your, your high-end college, um, it is a pretty niche market. So a lot of companies that have uh, foster relationships and got to trust the organizations, uh, and it's really kind of hard to break into that club. Um, on a personal level, however, um, you know, there's a lot of opportunity, particularly as analytics and media and everything uh, is really exploding um, there's a great opportunity for uh, people to get in the industry by joining one of these companies or having a good idea. And honestly, if you have a great idea and you can turn it into something that demonstrates value and you can bring that to a team, um, right? you can you can get an entry that way. And right. you know, in that regard, a lot of times, it's somebody knows somebody who gets your introduction. And at that point, it, it's on your own.
0: Got it, got it. Um, yeah, and just like the sports uh, tech industry, um, it's relatively new, right? From over like the past 10 years, the, the, the technology that's been developed, um, the data that's being used. Um, could you talk about some of the recent breakthroughs in the sports industry?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, so I've actually been in sports technology for 20 years myself, and sports technology in its broadest term has probably been around for even longer. Um, so I think really what's changed is when I broke into industry 20 years ago, is really just about workflow uh, and efficiency improvement. So, for example, you guys are probably too young to remember beta tapes, VHS, really. Um, But that was what people did. And prior to that, they actually developed their own film. They wouldn't watch anything. Um, So I was part of that wave of transitioning from tape to pure digital video editing. But again, it's really more about efficiency. They were watching video anyway. We could just turn it around much quicker. We could slice and dice and present it back much easier. Um, and that was kind of the state of the industry, whether it was uh, video, play diagramming, scouting reports, is really just digitizing all of um, these analog or, or paper-based workflows. Uh, but you're right, about 10 years ago, right around there, now you just start seeing mass amounts of data and analytics coming into play. And I think that's where the transition from just being about efficiency and workflow into more insight, uh, the ability to prepare better, the ability to communicate, decipher, opponent, intent, etc., um, that's really where I think uh, we've borrowed a lot from some of the other industries, where, where words like business intelligence, uh, BI, analytics, visualizations, those are all making their way into coaches' offices. Uh, and it's been pretty fascinating to be part of that transition and just watch these you know, old-school coaches or these pursued old-school coaches learn about how to use data taken on come up with all kind of insights into how they prepare for an opponent, how they run their practices. Uh, and that data comes in all shapes and forms. So at Catapult, uh, our brain is probably best known for the GPS sensors that players can wear that tracks all kinds of things in real time. So whether it's your velocity, your top speed, how much load, uh, work you're doing, where you are on the field. Uh, and then there's another half of our business that does all the video. So all the coaching video around, hey, let's see all the third down blitzes, or what do these guys do on first down, Um, marrying those two together, imagine how much data all these teams are looking at on a daily basis, and so being able to provide the tools that allow these teams to uh, make them actionable, which again is kind of cliche, but but so real, is what are the right pieces of data that impact how we're going to perform, and then what do we do to improve based on how we understand our opponent, how we understand ourselves and doing that all, for example, at uh, Champaign, where the football team actually uh, is a customer of ours, how do we do that within the, the guidelines and mandates of the 20-hour uh, week we have with our players, all right? So as a sports fan um, all my life, to now kind of see behind the scenes and be part of that process has been you know, unbelievably rewarding.
0: I see, I see. And then, um, yeah, you mentioned how um, there's just been this transition period um, where you're kind of taking some old school ideas and trying to, um, I guess, re reinvent them with um, with new technology and data, and trying to um, trying to fit that in into uh, current systems that coaches and teams have into place. So, I mean, what 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 would you see or what would you say would has been like the uh, greatest, I guess, resistance. Um, Within the sports industry, and in terms of change and, uh, and inertia that you've seen uh, from 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 coaches and organizations.
1: Yeah, I think so. Unlike maybe some other industries, where the technology is the job, um, and again, I don't want to oversimplify. But you know, if you're an accountant sitting in front of uh, NetSuite or you're a uh, salesperson sitting in front of Salesforce, you know, a lot of what you do is tied to that one system. Um, in our case, a lot of times the technology is mission critical, but, and this is going to sound oxymoron, but it's mission critical, but in a supporting way. So our video editing systems are so critical to what they do, but a coach's fundamental responsibility is to teach and to coach, Right. right? And so while they want to be better, and more efficient, You know, their primary trade and mission is to develop the players. And so sometimes the um, time and effort they allow to then go work on something that maybe they don't view as primary or central, that can be the challenge. Um, these guys are so busy throughout the year, right? Even the off season, preparing, recruiting, and everything that goes on is finding the time to sit down and, and train them on the system uh, can be difficult. Now, it is so much better today than it was 20 years when I first got in the business. Uh, I am not kidding. We used to dedicate training time to teaching people how to use a mouse, <laughs> right? So, so the, fir- the first day of training wasn't our product. It was Solitaire because Solitaire on Windows, hey, this is how you drag and drop. This is how you right click. Like, you wouldn't even, couldn't possibly imagine. And these are some of the most famous NLL coaches mm-hmm. uh, that you can think of. Uh, so we don't have to do that anymore. But what is still a challenge is, is teaching people how to think about data, um, right, and, and understanding that it is not the end-all, be-all. A lot of times your sample sets aren't just aren't large enough to really make a whole bunch of decisions off of, but enough that it can expose or show an outlier or, or point to something you want to research more. So it's a lot about just bringing context. Uh, and the other kind of challenge is, you know, whereas in other industries maybe – analytics and data and machine learning have captured everything. You know, my personal belief is we're not there yet with coaching. And so when you're dealing with the literally best in the world at, at what they do, these coaches at, at uh, the, these highest levels, you know, so much of what they know isn't actually captured by the algorithms, by the data just yet. Um, so there's a little bit of a trust factor that goes into believing all the numbers because the numbers don't always tell the whole story, but at the same time, sometimes they do Expose may be a flaw in thinking and so again, people to understand what the right balance is so that you know every staff has analysts um, but I wouldn't say every staff has good communication and understanding between the analysts and the coaching staffs themselves uh, and I think that's something that we as sport technologists and, and the providers of these tools and systems uh, can really focus on right which is teaching people how to think about data.
0: Right and I guess like what what do you think would be a good way to go about solving, uh, solving that problem with, with coaching and, um, kind of, uh, focusing on that trust singularity to, to, to solve that problem.
1: Where it's, where it's worked well. And you know, the question now is how do you make it repeatable is when you find that real example, right? Like again, it's cliche, but it's the aha moment. Mm-hmm. Right. So you take a, a belief where, Maybe the coach was raised that way and he believes it simply because that's what his mentor believed, Right? Everyone talks about these coaching trees and it's really true. You can, Based on where people come from, you kind of know uh, the things they prioritize or the what they think, et cetera. Uh, and then based on their own data, their own video, you show some things that maybe run counter. And then you can use the data to explain why that happened and then you open their eyes and they're a little bit more receptive the next time. Um, there's no way to just kind of you know beat it down, um, beat it into them. Um, they've got more experience uh, in their and, and and again like so I, I did a little bit of cognitive science in, at Champagne and just thinking and so these are domain experts in the truest sense and the way they think about a game and the, their recall and it's just phenomenal. And again as a as a fan being able to see this firsthand it was uh, you know, one of those coolest behind-the-scenes experiences. Uh, again, that that you know, I treasure. Mm-hmm. But so knowing that and not trying to position yourself right as the expert, as one who's just there to help and work with them and to see things that uh, maybe they didn't recognize. Um, in that sense, they can be very receptive. Um, if you come in saying, "Hey, this is replacing um, or a substitute for." really what a lot of your value is, which is your expertise and your interpretation. Um, that typically gets you off on the wrong foot and you're not really gonna go anywhere. Uh, so it really is just presenting yourself as, hey, like this is about balance. Right. There's a lot of data. And, and honestly, some sports lend themselves really well to it and other sports are tough. Baseball, I would you know, I would subscribe to the fact that, hey, that analytics and just the data itself, because everything's controlled. Pitchers are pitching from certain distance from home plate you're getting ridiculous uh, data sets, hundreds and hundreds of swings over a career, hundreds of games in a season, um, right? The is pretty close. Football, you know, a play can, can succeed or fail for no other reason than a guy trips, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or someone just makes a phenomenal play that you would never expect and you would call the exact same play again and, right, that guy doesn't make the incredible tackle that's, I think, the, the, f- the interesting thing where you think about the different sports and how they're applied, what the data you have, um, and then just working with the staffs to kind of to help them think in a similar fashion.
0: Got it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's really interesting. And I was, um, I was listening to one of the Catapult Sports podcasts, actually, and uh, I remember someone mentioning that 20% of athletes are afraid of video communication. Um, mm-hmm. why, why, do you, why do you think that is?
1: Um, which podcast was that?
0: It was, uh, it was on the Catapult, uh, website. It was, uh, I, I don't forget, remember what tab, but, um, it was like the one that was linked to SoundCloud. Um, okay. let's see. Um, it was, oh yeah, it was five steps to success in video analysis. Um, got it. Yeah.
1: Um, so actually during the whole COVID one of the things that uh, we did as an effort to give back to the community was just do a ton of, of podcasts, in particular, mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of um, online webinars with practitioners. You know, everyone's got a little bit of downtown to or downtime to um, uh, potentially get better at their at their trade. Um, so we did a ton of them. So uh, apologize, I didn't I didn't listen to them all. <laughs> but my my guess is that um, and this is actually as a as a parent uh, and a a coach in youth sports you know, one of the things they preach is if you're gonna talk to the player, it can't always be about what they're doing wrong. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, one of the reasons it might be is, again, maybe this is more of an old school philosophy, but the only time I send you video is when you're doing something wrong, then of course my uh, appetite and my excitement to go watch something is probably dampened simply since I know it's all bad. Um, Where I've seen people use video really effectively uh, is obviously when you highlight here's what you're doing well or you're improving Particularly as a, a direct result of a program we put in place. Hey, let's let's work on our rebounding. Let's look on our speed Whatever the case may be uh, And then in addition here are some things that we got to work on. and depending on <laughs> Where you are in the, in the league standings depending on the time of year, you know, maybe that message is delivered a little bit differently um, but one of the big focus of Catapult really is you know our products and hence our users and hence the departments within the organization. There's so many touch points to the athlete and we're all trying to give them uh, feedback, right? Both positive and uh, negative, but in a constructive constructive fashion. So our wearable side where we have performance directors who are, are working with um, with the athletes, um, hey, you know, let's make sure we, we hit our, our peak intensity today, right? Yeah, make sure you're 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 sprinting when we ask you to, and here's why. Uh, hey, you gotta pull back a little bit because today's kind of a light day and you wanna make sure that um, you're, you're tracking not only for this week's game, but to make it through the season or return to play scenario, whatever. So that's a lot of communication um, and feedback that our users are having on the, kind of the physical performance side and similarly on the tactical side through the video or other coaching points, same kind of instruction. And so one of the big things we're working on is how do you coordinate the delivery of all that information all for the good of the athlete back through a single touch point that isn't overwhelming for the athlete, yet collects everything you want them to know. Mm-hmm. And we're one of right. the unique companies in the space that you know, really sits across what we call these different verticals. So we have a coaching vertical, we have this performance health vertical. Uh, here in America, you know, we've got so many of the, uh, I think we're like 80%, 85%, Power Five, and, and you know, the vast majority of the NFL on both the wearable as well as the video side. So it's like, how do we create that perfect experience for the athlete? Because at the end of the day, you know, to some degree, you're only as good as, as your players are. And you're only as good as your players are when they're on the field. You know, What can we do there? But I think a lot of it has been us looking at you know, what's been successful in social media, what are other uh, industries doing that really engage, particularly in the college landscape where these guys are they're all between what, 18, 21, 22. Um, but that actually is a focus. So hopefully the next time we do a podcast like that and people are... Referencing our product, it's not twenty percent. Don't want to log in. So <laughs> right, maybe twenty percent. Right. Uh, 20%, right? Um, well, anyway, yeah, I, th- I think we can definitely definitely make that better. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, I think that's that was really interesting. And as I was I was looking through um, the website, um, and I'm interested in soccer, so naturally Perfect. I was inclined to look at some of the products uh, that were related to that. I saw that there was uh, a wearable where uh it would measure our goalkeeper's uh dive yeah. intensity. That 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 I thought was crazy.
1: So that's just the the evolution of things. So um you know catapult um brought to market the the GPS sensor and, and way back when it was literally just tracking speed where you were, hence distance, right? All the, the mm-hmm. positional base. Right. And then over time people recognize that you know what? Um speed and distance aren't always the best measure of what you're trying to do. So even on a, and as a global company, we have to call it football. So we have American football, which is almost like antithetical. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then we have football because we can't call it soccer because otherwise all of our- uh,
0: Yeah, international. Our colleagues
1: around the world. Yeah. You know? uh, but, but, and so you think about a, uh, well, you know, let's talk on the podcast. So think about the soccer team, you know, a goalkeeper isn't expected to run a lot. So miles traveled per game. Uh, or, or yards right, run per game isn't a very useful metric to quantify the activity and load that we're putting on our goalkeepers, um, but dives are. And so our sports scientists, our data scientists, and our um, engineers work together to create all of these different sports analytics. And what these sports analytics allow you to do is really understand, right? Uh, again, it all comes back to load, which is you know, how much work am I putting on you, and then intensity. So what are the proper measures for that? So for goalie, it might be your dives and jumps. Um, We have some really cool algorithms for hockey, because nobody's running in hockey, but you're certainly striding, and that's a different profile uh, on the sensor data. So we have a stride algorithm. Uh, For football, we have throw detection, because QBs put a lot of uh, load on their arms. Same thing for baseball with pitch detection. Um, So that's an area where I'd say over the past five years, uh, and a lot even more recently, there's been a lot of investment in terms of right it's not always one size fits all if our goal is to improve and maintain player performance and obviously having the right measures for performance is really critical uh, and we're enough sports now that we just see firsthand that you know it isn't always you know this measure for this player and so the ability to really get into the, whether it's rugby baseball cricket soccer Football, hockey, I think are the seven sports so far that we have released um, specific algorithms. And then there's even more on the table, right, for tennis and some other things that that we're constantly exploring.
0: And then like for for each of these algorithms, um, is there like a certain baseline or like, I guess, like a template that kind of oversees all of them? Or do you have to cater uh, uh, a unique algorithm to each sport?
1: So I think um, there's a bit of overlap. So a, um, you know, a lot of your throwing motions um, profile relatively similarly. But I think the common element is, is probably true of, of most machine learning um, uh, development, which is you gotta get a, a big enough data set that's representative right, of the space uh, you're trying to solve. You've, you know, the hardest part for us sometimes is, um, is uh, tagging it. So we, we have positive examples, and negative examples, right, good training sets, et cetera. Uh, that's a little bit difficult sometimes because we gotta work with the teams directly. Um, and obviously this can be some pretty sensitive data. So just making sure that, um, and this again, something we've developed over the years is just a lot of trust with our, with our customer base. They know um, that we're gonna handle their data I see. Uh, with care. Um, but so if we wanna go, we recently just did a, um, improvements to our baseball algorithm. So we had to go and, and work with a couple of key clients run them through, collect a lot of data, take that back to our data scientists. Uh, They train uh, our algorithms, we go back and repeat them. Um, We have to do a lot of verification, obviously. Um, That's where the video side of a business becomes really helpful, because oftentimes the best way to verify that, hey, that event actually happened or not is just to watch the film. Um, So it can be a pretty lengthy process. Um, Every time we do it, we get a little bit better. Um, Obviously, we're acquiring these data sets over time, so that helps in terms of just collection.
0: Got it. Got it. Uh,
1: process, um, but you know, as a guy, you know, so when I graduated or left Champaign machine learning or AI that was still pretty, you know, non-mainstream. Um, so I've been an application developer and, and more on the product leadership side uh, for most of my career. But to participate and follow along and you know hear everybody talking about machine learning and how it helps and how great Spotify is or Amazon and everything else. Um, but again, it's always cool to see how this stuff is applied. To sports right right because uh, again like probably no one really thought about it at the time someone thought about it and now we're doing it um so it's pretty cool
0: yeah that is that is for sure um and yeah you you mentioned um working with uh, uh the data scientists and sports scientists working with uh these large data sets and um going through uh, a verification process um so like when these data sets are received, like I guess like what differentiates like good and usable data versus data that uh isn't as usable or like I guess is so on so bad data?
1: Um so part of it is um is uh well certainly if the data itself is noisy, then mm-hmm. that's no good for anybody, right? So there are, are situations where you know maybe um the the sensor uh wasn't warned. Tightly to the body. Got it. So obviously, our accelerometer is going to pick up a lot of noise. Um, generally, um, we, we work with uh, teams and practitioners um, that are really solid, right? So they're collecting good data and things like that. You know, I think the, the one that's probably bitten us the most is simply because it, it comes down to you, the size of uh, your data set, right? So a lot of times when we do our throwing algorithms or throwing detection algorithms, you know there's a lot of variation in how people throw a football there's surprising a lot of a uh, variation in the delivery of a baseball pitch so time to time is there we may train and then find out we didn't capture a particular throwing style Right. so i wouldn't say it's necessarily bad data as it was maybe we didn't you know get enough data out of the gate to cover the different throwing motions um but a lot of it probably is always hindsight is 2020. um Right, we've adapted and, and we can augment and re-release and, and, and test in the, in the market. But I think that's where, you know, we have so many soccer customers um, that making sure we get enough data and, and and whatnot for that sport has been pretty good. You know, maybe some of the other sports that we're a little bit newer to, like a baseball, um, you know, maybe that's part of the challenge, which is less about the quality of the data, other than like, you know, the sensors just not working the way they should be. Um, But it's more about just making sure we're getting the right set and honestly getting the video to go with it as well. Because if we can't validate uh, and identify the testing examples, um, then you're obviously training against uh, suspect data and that's obviously doesn't work well.
0: And then what what would you say fascinates you most about the sports industry? Like what do you say it's working with the customers, uh, the data itself, the technology, player performance? Uh,
1: for me, personally, it's working with the customers. Got it. Um, you know, I love, like, my my passion is to um, solve problems. Um, and, again, I'm just particularly lucky I get to solve problems in an industry that, that, you know, fascinates me personally. Um, and so, you know, maybe when I first got in the business 20 years ago, the, the biggest eye-opener for me was just the amount of actual work put in behind the scenes. You know, so everybody knows that these guys are putting in hours. Uh, right? You hear the, the stories even on... Uh, The media outlets and, uh, you know, if you're you're a fan, you're certainly on blogs or whatever. Like, these coaches work a lot. Uh, But I remember the first time, um, so I cut my teeth at training camp uh, with the Kansas City Chiefs way back in, geez, 2001, 2000, something like that. Um, And it was the first time walking through the staff room and just seeing the binders of reports and seeing how much data was being actually put in by hand against the video uh, by kind of the, the junior staff members. And then the process they go through uh, throughout the, the week, you know, Mondays, whatever, um, special teams or offense base two days blitz package, like and it just is crazy. Um, and so the appreciation for how much effort goes in. And then also as the problem solver, technologist, looking like, oh my God, like we can make that better. We can make that better. Like this should take five minutes. Um, has been, you know, particularly uh, rewarding. Um, And then what really makes it interesting is when I wear my engineering hat, and it's like, oh, well, these things are so obvious, we should do them, and then you present them to the customer, and then they give you some really interesting reasons as to why that may seem like a good idea, but isn't, right? And at the end of the day, I think that's what, you know, in 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 a product leadership position, Understanding the customer problems and the environment and really understanding what solutions will work or won't is probably key. That's probably true of any industry, but particularly ours. Um, So I'll give you an example. Um, You know, there's so much play diagramming that happens in the football team. And and one of the things is, you notice just how much repetition sometimes there is. You know, certainly you can envision a world where, hey, we're just copying and pasting and everything's automatically generated and we could save you, you know, an hour a day not having to draw. And so one of the early insights given back to me was like, that may be true, but while I'm drawing, I'm also learning, right? I'm drawing the opponents' plays and I'm tracing their routes. What I'm really doing is, right, thinking through the routes myself. And so if you take that away from me, yes, I'll get my card drawn up quicker, in fact, drawn up immediately, but I don't understand and I can't do my job. because I haven't gone through the motion, right? So the question is like, what are the right things to automate? Or, you know, what are things we could do that actually increase your understanding, right? Through data or whatever the case may be. <laughs> and there's some other things too, which is like, like like Albert, that's a great idea. We should draw on a computer. Let me show you when I get a chance to draw my cards. And I'd follow him around. He'd be like the cafeteria, <laughs> right? With a tray, right, walking out right. of the office. And then some coach would be like, hey, can you draw that for me? So he's like, see what I'm talking about? I can pull out, a card and a marker and get this to him, I cannot go back to my desk, fire up my computer, right, to the right play, draw, and, like that's the reality I live in, right? So great idea, maybe someday in the future, but here's the environment I work in, how can you help me now? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so as a you know, know-it-all kid coming out of college and his first job, whatever, two years uh, in the workforce, you know, all these great ideas, um, you know, it's a bit of a wake-up call, uh, a bit humbling. Um, but you learn very quickly, right, which is, you know, you've got to understand the customer and what they're trying to solve. And if you understand that, you've got a chance.
0: Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, you, you mentioned um, just, like, all the work that goes behind the curtains, um, whether it be uh, on, on your side developing the technology or on, uh, on the other side, like you mentioned with the chiefs, so how they just have stacks of binders. Um, and all this data that hasn't been normalized. Um, but uh, it's just in terms more of, like, uh, of your skill set, uh, I know that um, you, one of your specialties is uh, uh, developing product roadmaps for your customers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess what, what would you say goes into building a successful product roadmap from, I guess, uh, uh, from like the planning and ideating to uh, it being in the hands of the customer?
1: Um, yeah, I think it, it all comes back down to um, probably two things, right? One is what are, what, are the, what are the problems that customers face, but really from their perspective? Um, and then within there, what could you do um, to bring real value, right? Either more value than a competitor or really just to solve a, a, a problem they don't even know they have. Um, and that kind of understanding only happens when you just embed yourself and spend a lot of time and, and, and really try to learn um, that customer's job. Um, again, when I started, <clears throat> new kid, all the greatest ideas in the world. Um, yeah, you know, I'm 20 years plus now, uh, roughly in the business, and I think you know I'm finally getting a grasp of some of these things. Um, and so there's that that learning never stops, right? And there was a period in my time where uh, taking on some other roles, um, you know, forced me to to go. Uh, take a more internal operations role and right maybe I wasn't in touch with the customers as much and you know that that really impacted my ability to represent them uh, right in roadmap conversation and things like that so the opportunity to get back into a product role and deal with the customers again is you know one of the things that when I returned back to catapult three years ago all right was one of the things that was the most exciting right just to be back in front of the customers again so obviously if you understand the problems um, and, and what you can do um, that is you know, uh, viable, either now or in the future, that's probably step number one. And then a quick step number two is prioritizing them because nobody has enough time to do everything. Uh, everyone's got a gr- always got a great idea, right? So what's the criteria you use to prioritize so that when you go back to the customer and explain your roadmap, they understand why you're making decisions uh, that you're making, particularly since they're not always delivering near-term value. You know, so much of what we uh, still have in place today uh, is a direct result of, like I mentioned, what had to happen when uh, we were going from analog and tape over to digital. You know, Files were massive, uh, transfer times were, were terrible, the internet didn't even exist. Um, none of the things are relevant anymore for the most part. 5G is around the corner, right? we'll see how long it takes to really get here, but it's not decades. Um, And so thinking about hey, how can we use the cloud to move around all this video and data versus always local networks or um, USB drives and things like that right start to dictate how you'd solution for these problems. And so if you've got a good um, Focus on where you want to deliver um, You do a good job prioritizing uh, using data um, As much as possible and you have a good way to present that back to the customer so they understand where you're going Um, right it's all SaaS and and lifetime value and so if they understand where you're going they'll stick with you so some of our best customers have been with us for, you know 15 20 years now um, right they'll go on the journey uh, when you don't do those things well um, that's where it gets tough right because you're switching uh, horses midstream you're not getting as far as you want toward the future because you're always um, trying to solve short-term pain um, customers don't really understand where you're going right they may not see everything they want now, and they don't understand where to go in the future. And so that's where I think, you know, being able to recognize the customer problem, uh, you know, work with uh, the company uh, overall to prioritize them uh, in a way that that makes sense, is defensible, and isn't something, right, that um, you'll debate every week. Um, And then in particular, if you can also then bring the skill of translating between the customer, other internal stakeholders, and ultimately the engineering product group, um, that's a home run, right? Because at some point, someone's got to build something. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, exactly. They don't
1: understand, right? And they're not able to work with the customers uh, as often or as directly uh, as possible, which is always something you should try to facilitate if you can, right? Because again, you just remove middlemen and everybody gets to experience firsthand. Um, but in a case like the NFL or even college football, it'd be hard for me to bring the whole, <laughs> our whole engineering team down to the next uh, offensive staff meeting in Champaign um, so someone's gotta bring the story back. Right. And their ability to highlight the right things and you know, point the engineers in the right direction, answer questions, you know, that's definitely uh, an important skill. And so you know, as, a, as a former engineer, as, a, as one that was you know, kind of brought up academically through computer science, that's been one thing that's helped me a lot. Um, because when you're a startup, as you would know, you're actually all of them. Right? <laughs> like, hey, I go, go, go get the lead, I've got to go figure out what the problem is to solve, create the value. Exactly. And at some point, i got to go build it.
0: Right. Um, the, the whole customer discovery process, right?
1: Yeah, right. Yeah. So you've two guys doing all of that. So communication and things like that aren't a problem. But as you get bigger and you scale, then obviously uh, communication and just making sure that the right parties and, and things getting relayed back and forth, um, absolutely critical.
0: Got it. Yeah. No, that's, that's really interesting. I'm actually uh, just curious. Yeah. Um, have you had like a favorite success story or like a particular, um, I guess, organization or or player that you've seen has uh, grown as like a result of uh, I guess like one of catapult's products uh, or like a product that you've you've touched uh, uh, yourself?
1: Yeah. So um, let's see. What am I most proud of? Um, so early in my career, like I said, I was a uh, programmer, so I had the opportunity to uh, uh, work in almost startup fashion, and we created a, uh, a video editor specifically for what we call like the flow sports. So flow sports being like not football, not baseball, like soccer, basketball, right, where it's basically continuous play. Right, right. And so uh, um, I worked with uh, another guy to build an editor. Um, And within I think two or three years, we ended up bringing on maybe three or four hundred customers. But what was cool, it was like most of the NHL, um, the vast majority of the high-profile Division One hockey teams, and then a fair number of basketball. Actually, Illinois women's basketball uh, was one of them. So I used to go down to Champaign quite a bit back. That was when uh, Coach Gruntz was still there. Um, anyway, so that was particularly rewarding because that was a case where you know, I would work with, we had one sales guy primarily, and so I'd work with him. He would you know, get the lead, get the introduction, we'd go do a demo, we'd have conversation. Um, it was an early stage product, so a lot of like, real direct customer interaction in terms of, hey, what do you think about this, what do you think about that, would this work? So we're moving really quick. Um, and we just found that that right opportunity where the NHL was uh, looking to transition off their legacy product. We were the, the best thing available um, and we did that for a while. Um, and then I guess what was kind of cool even after that was, you know, at some point all legacy systems, you know, get replaced. So we've since replaced that product with some others um, over time. Um, and so the two things have been cool is, you know, there's certain features that we built in that product that have been reincarnated right a second and a third time with all the new versions of ed- editors we've made um, and so that's been cool to know that hey some of these things we're doing that um, were you know relevant and, and super useful back then are also right useful to this day, even though I'm not the guy who's uh, directly coded them. And then the other kind of cool thing was and when I came back to catapult uh, three years ago and kind of um, able to reintroduce uh, and reacquaint myself with a lot of the guys I worked with um, when I left Catapult um, back in, in 2010, uh, was there's this one guy from Notre Dame who's like, hey, I still have a copy of, of that software running. It's like this like Windows 95 machine or something like that. <laughs> that is really just kept in a closet, almost like under lock and key, because every now and then they have to go back in the archives to pull up some video, and they just make sure that there's, I think it's the last instance of, the software's called Vega, it's the last instance of Vega running anywhere in the world, Wow. Um but it's just pretty funny to know that, you know, this this one guy felt like it's still important enough to keep running that, that he's willing to it yeah. Windows ninety five or Windows ninety eight or whatever. Oh
0: my gosh. Um yeah. And um uh, you you mentioned that um you said all legacy systems get replaced, right? Uh like what 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 would you say is like the next legacy system that will be replaced and what do you think it's gonna be replaced with?
1: Um so, it is true all legacy systems get replaced, um, but i probably qualify my own statement by saying uh, over time and in mm-hmm. pieces. Got <laughs> right? it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, when you're talking about enterprise systems, um, and so we have our our, our, our mainstream, uh, our main product for our football is Thunder. All right. So, if you go down to the University of Illinois, uh, they've got our Thunder, Thunder uh, it's really a network installed. So, every coach has a client. Uh, every meeting room has a client. If there's a video room, that is kind of the um, uh, central command for everything. We have cloud-based components, so we can like, make that particularly uh, in an environment like today, where all your meetings and all your staff are remote. Uh, and then we have all kind of modules and add-ons on top right, that support um, different extensions of the workflow. right? So it's a, a pretty big system. Um, So it's like I was actually part of the team that rolled that app back in uh, 2007, and so again I was um, mildly surprised, um, good and bad, that you know coming back three years ago that it was still running (laughs) and it's holding up, and yet it's time to, to start thinking about moving on, and so when you think about how do you replace it, again it's more about bits and pieces, right? So there's certain elements, particularly that deal with the coaches, that are ripe to pull out and then put in a new platform and one that takes advantage, technically, of all that's available today, right? Which is the ability to really handle um, unstru- like large sets of unstructured data, leveraging the cloud for the distribution of all the content, um, even down to the security, right? is a big deal, which is there's so much out there now um, that, that can help. Um, and so those are the tools available, and then you find the right workflows where it's, it's um, conceivable that a user would depart Right. So I'll take this piece of my job and I'll do it in the cloud because I'm better off but I also know I can always go back to the rest of what I need to do in my system. And so it's almost like piece by piece we extract until such time there's nothing left. Um, so we did it back in 2007 and seven and eight with um, um, the Thunder product. But even then we had customers that would um, stay on the old system for, gosh, four or five years. Um, because again, they're just resistant to change. We want to make sure everyone else (laughs) suffers all the uh, uh, bumps. Um, But you know, actually we're we're about, we're we're going through a lot of that process even today, right? So Catapult as a uh, group of companies that have been uh, put together through M&A over time, Um, right? We have products that were built to be really good at what they do in their space. Um, We have that opportunity now across a platform to really unify them and in that, we can bring all kind of efficiency, cost savings, and power uh, to our customers. Someone like an athletic department, the University of Illinois, uh, as well as bring all kind of internal leverage. Right? Hey, like we're only building one thing once. We're all benefiting from each other's work, um, and then open up the door to all kind of new capabilities that you know didn't exist against that legacy code. Um, it it is one of the hardest things to do anywhere, right? You have a very successful, tried and true system. You know it's. Um, it's kind of long in the tooth so find the right opportunity and way to basically um, replace legacy system is always a challenge because you have to justify it against all your today's needs um, but if you do it smartly right you can satisfy your customers today as well as set yourself up for your customers tomorrow yeah
0: i i think that was actually really interesting um it's like you split it up into components and then um you almost pick a point where uh inertia doesn't exist or like there's like uh there isn't much resistance and like maybe like you said in 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 sports where there's more controlled areas um and then try to justify using a new technology or a new enterprise system in that sport and then use that as justification to maybe branch out into other sports or different areas where you can kind of point back and be like oh like it's working here it can work for you as well and right in your sport yeah that's that's really interesting. Um, but I guess just kind of, I guess going back more maybe uh, to, uh, to your days in Champagne. Yeah. Um, I'm actually curious. Like, what uh, what was I guess like what, what was the what was a class that uh left left an impact on you um when, when you when you're at school?
1: There's um, <laughs> there's one of the, the questions that you you gave me ahead of time. I was racking my brains like, what's that one? Um, so in grad school. And I don't remember the course number to save my life, but uh, there's a class on genetic algorithms. Um, and I don't even remember why I took it, because I think it sounded interesting, right? But the whole idea was to uh, create algorithms based off of um, the principles of evolution, right? Survival of the fittest. And so, as I recall, the whole premise is basically there are certain types of problems that you can decompose. And if you optimally or try to optimally solve for the subproblems and you put them all back together, you create a you know close to optimal solution for the overall problem. And the thing about genetic algorithms was that um, the way you would do that is you would pretend they were in a gene pool. And so if you had some kind of uh, scoring criteria against the solution for the subproblems, you would just have them battle it out, right? And then each generation should get better because uh, the, the component subproblems and their descents, et cetera, right, continue to survive because of the criteria. Um, so that was a pretty cool concept, uh, which is why I took the class. The professor, and I wish I remember his name was, was great um, right, And not only teaching the algorithm, but coming up with all these examples of um, right, the, the types of problems that, that really could benefit from such a solution. And then uh, coincidentally, I was reflecting back on my my, pro- my you know, course project for it, and it was actually design- it was the attempt to design uh, the optimal, Major League, uh, an optimal Major League Baseball schedule. Taking into consideration things like uh, certain venues being booked on certain dates because of like a concert, for example, right? Trying to optimize travel costs. You wouldn't want to go from, you know, LA to Pittsburgh, back to LA on on uh, subsequent um, series. Um, balance, right? So you had the, the right amount of um, divisional play. I think it wasn't all lumped together. All right? so it was a pretty, um, Complicated uh, s- scoring mechanism that would take in all kind of factors like, you know, like travel cost, um, you know, not playing too many games in a row, and things like that. And you just kind of threw it all in the machine, and then um, out came the schedule. And then you could grade it, analyze it, compute an overall cost, whatever. Um, and so I remember doing it. It was a lot of fun. Uh, never thinking, hey, like this is a some kind of Precursor foreshadowing moment into sports technology. It was just, you know, I I, uh, had this class and it was a cool project. I like sports. Um, And I remember sending something to, I forget, somebody at MLB. I'm sure the letter never got read or whatever. It's like, hey, I got this great idea uh, how you guys can lay out your schedules. I'm sure they've got like 2,000 people responsible for that. Um, And that was it, right? Course ended. Uh, I got a pretty good grade. Um, had a lot of fun. I don't know that I've ever used genetic algorithm again uh, in my life, um, but it was, a, it was a, a pretty cool project.
0: Yeah, that does sound interesting. Um, and then, where would somebody catch Albert on a Saturday night?
1: <laughs> um, I have no idea what it's called anymore. So, it used to be Gullies, and then it was the library. And I think they went back to Gullies, and now I don't even know what's there. Um, so, I've been back to Champaign a couple of times recently. Um, but uh, yeah, I had a lot of friends that had worked there, um, particularly in grad school, is a little bit older crowd. Um, but yeah, if there was a place I was gonna be Saturday after nine p.m. It was probably gonna be Gully's.
0: Got it. Got it. Yeah, I don't. I don't think that's there anymore, or at least yeah. I don't think I've heard of it. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I guess like, uh, if there's anything you would do. Differently, whether it be your undergrad or grad, um, what 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 would that be?
1: Um, so honestly, I know like this pocket of interesting is it, like forces a, a brief moment of self reflection. Something I don't usually give myself a lot of time. I, there isn't a thing I would change based on where I am today. Like I said, I'm extremely lucky to be in a situation where uh, you know I get to do professionally what I love to do personally. Um, so sports and tech, like, there's, there's nothing better. Um, but I think if there's probably one thing I would have done differently is, you know, I was first generation um, uh, kid. Parents are from Taiwan. Education was everything. Um, right, so probably since I was born, I was on a track to go undergrad, uh, post-grad degree, and then go be a doctor engineer. Like, literally, you know, that was probably my, my preordained path. Um, and so coming out of undergrad, I went straight into grad school. I actually stayed uh, and, and uh, enrolled in the PhD program in computer science right after I graduated undergrad. Um, I think, reflecting back, because I never finished my dissertation, because I was never ultimately passionate enough about my um, project to see it through, um, I think that's one where I would probably encourage people to take a break. Um, right? Because a PhD is a pretty tough thing to grind through. And so unless you're really interested and passionate about your research, there's going to come a point in time where it's just almost, at least for me, it wasn't, it was no longer worth it. I wanted to go and, you know, uh, do something else, solve problems, go work in industry. So, you know, if I had taken a year or two off and gone to the workforce and done some things, I probably would have um, um, had more clarity in the types of things I wanted to pursue and then come back to grad school with, with much more focus in terms of, right, I want to take on this project, I want to, Um, do this research or ultimately this is where I see my life being Um, you know so if I were to go back into grad school now Um, which probably my wife would not be too happy (laughs) Um, but if I were to go back in grad school now I think it'd be like you know what it would be around sports and analytics and like some of these massive data sets and there's an opportunity there to do in fact you know a lot of our uh, sports scientists participate in research and (laughs) again it's like fascinating. like I remember I used to study um, and all the different libraries are on campus, and we just mix it up and, and go wherever uh, we felt like. But we used to spend time to, in the kinesiology library, and I remember I'd be bored um, with my own assignment. I'd start looking around the shelves, and you'd to see all, all the previous um, um, theses, and so it was just like fascinating, the types of subjects. It's like, it's like a rotational angle of tennis rackets for right-handed players, I mean, this is crazy. Right. Um, but, like, that's a whole domain, right? Uh, again, up on our, on our website, and, and you look at all the um, webinars we've hosted and all the practitioners. I mean, these guys all have PhDs in sports science. Like, sports science wasn't even a thing um, for us uh, back then, um, right? But I think it would be kind of cool to go back in if I had funding. <laughs> right, so I had funding, I had my, you know, my, my RA set up. Um, I had an office space in Beckman, so I go back to Beckman, And just hang out and just really think about data and the the effects of data on, you know, whatever, third down blitzes, whatever the case may be, like, that'd be pretty cool. Um, But I think that's one where, like, yeah, before enrolling in a a PhD uh, program in particular, just make sure you understand really why um, the research you're you're signing up for is is what you want to do. Because if it's not, like I said, it becomes really tough to to just grind it out.
0: And then... uh Just to wrap up here, um, my last question to you would be, uh, if you were to give advice to uh, somebody who wants to go into sports technology or just the sports industry in general, um, what advice would you give to them? Um,
1: hmm. What advice would I give? You know, honestly, it's probably no different than uh, trying to crack uh, any other industry. Um, that you're passionate about. Um, you know, I think sports technology is uh, one of those industries that we attract a lot of people that are, are fans of sport. So just by the numbers, maybe it seems like it'd be hard to crack. Uh, but it's probably not much different than video games or music or some of the others. So if you're passionate about what you want to do, you're diligent, right? So you're not afraid to take, and again, it's, it's probably, it probably sounds so cliche, but you're not afraid to take no for an answer. Um, you know, uh, looking back, we've said no to a couple of ideas and things presented that ended up taking off, right? So who are we uh, to, to say what, what, what is good and what isn't? Um, and, and what's different maybe today than was in the past is particularly in technology, is you, know, you don't need a lot to get going, right? If you're gonna build a mechanical part, that's a you know, uh, maybe a bigger investment to get up and going, but if you've got a good idea, and you have access to the data, you can code, you can present, um, right? The opportunity is there, um, particularly if you can find a cousin or a classmate or anybody else who can just make an introduction, um, then I would say, you know, don't don't let anything stop you. And, and really that's, I think ultimately the thing I love about computer science that I probably didn't realize until much later with my own kids is and maybe there's other fields like this, but computer science is such a great field because it does allow you to work in something you're passionate about, right? Computer science is just a tool. Well, I guess programming and application development is just a tool. And so whether you love music, whether you love sports, whether you love accounting, (laughs) uh, whatever the case may be, um, there's an opportunity to bring technology into that space and then you become a member of that space, right? So for me, it's sports technology. For others, it might be medicine. Um, That's why I tell my kids, it's like, look, it's not about just coding or whatever. It's about solving problems and, and being in, in something you love to do. So, <laughs> so the same thing is like, hey, you're going to be an engineer? <laughs> um, but you get to pick the field you want to work in, right? So whether it's law, medicine, music, sport, it doesn't matter. Um, but knowing how to code and think about data, I think, are just such valuable skills that it allows you to crack. And then in particular, in sports technology, where honestly, we're still, as an industry, a little bit behind everywhere else. I do think there's plenty of opportunity for people that have great ideas that you know maybe they're already tried and true or been there done that in some other verticals um but the opportunity still remains in sports um you just can't be afraid to put yourself out there right and try to get these introductions um and, and whatnots to right some people that may be a bit hard to reach um, but it's certainly possible
0: yeah that's uh that's great advice um but, yeah, I mean, that pretty much about wraps it up. I, uh, I really appreciate you coming on, Albert.
1: No, it's great. Anything I can do to help the alma mater, help get more kids into uh, technology, glad to do it. Yeah, thanks.